All right, we're in Jeremiah chapter 47, whatever you're following along with. Jeremiah chapter 47, we're winding down our study of the book of Jeremiah. Got a few powerful chapters left. The topic this morning, God's judgment against the warlike Philistines is personified as a sword that Jeremiah has a conversation with. The title of our message, Talk to the Sword Hand. <laughs> to have a word of prayer. Lord, here we encounter an ancient people who don't even exist anymore, and yet your Holy Spirit is going to speak to us in a powerful, contemporary way. We thank you that your word is alive and powerful, that it doesn't ever return void, that it accomplishes its purpose, Lord. I pray that we would have ears to hear what your spirit says to our church today and to each of us as Christians. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. When Indiana Jones encountered the sword-wielding man in Raiders of the Lost Ark, he wasted no time pulling his revolver and shooting his skilled but inferiorly armed adversary. Superior weaponry is usually the decisive factor in any altercation. Our text in Jeremiah is a prophecy against the Philistines. They were an age-old adversary of the Jews. At one point in their early history, Israel was oppressed for a period of almost 200 years by the Philistines. One reason for their subjection was that the Philistines always had superior weaponry. They were skilled in crafting iron into weapons when Israel was still using bronze. When the Israelites fought the Philistines, it was like bringing a sword to a gunfight. God often used the disparity between the Philistine weaponry and Israel's to show himself strong on their behalf. In fact, if you start looking at the history of the battles between the Philistines and Israel, this is a major theme, how that they were always outmanned and outgunned, but they got the victory through the Lord. For example, in the book of Judges, we're introduced to a man, a farmer named Shamgar, who single-handedly killed 600 Philistine warriors with nothing more than an ox goad in his hand. Another time, we read that Samson killed 1,000 Philistines. The only weapon he had was the jawbone of a donkey. During the reign of King Saul, the Philistines came against the Jews with 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. The only Israelites who had any weapons at all were Saul and his son Jonathan. Nevertheless, the Jews routed the Philistines when God caused confusion in the enemy camp. Which brings us to the greatest Philistine encounter of all time, David versus Goliath. A young boy, maybe 15 years old, armed with a sling, facing off a nine-foot, nine-inch-tall giant armed to the teeth. But you and I know that the battle was decided in the heart of David. Superior weaponry was indeed the decisive factor in all of those altercations, but it turns out to be superior spiritual weaponry wielded by the man of God. 
that's gonna be our point of contact and interest with this ancient prophecy against these Philistines. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, weapons are being fashioned against you to plunder you, but number two, weapons have been furnished to you to prosper you. Let's take a look first of all at weapons being fashioned against you. The final chapters of Jeremiah are a series of prophecies against the nations surrounding Israel at the time. Some of them we are familiar with, like Egypt last week and the Philistines today. Others will be much more obscure, but not less meaningful. Little is known, really, about the origins of the, Philist- origins, excuse me, of the Philistines, except what is contained in the Bible. They were a seafaring people who came to Canaan from a place identified as Kaftor. It's generally thought to be the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. The early Philistine settlements in the land of Canaan took on a new significance when five cities, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza, and the areas around them were conquered by the Philistines and taken over in about the 12th century BC. Probably all those cities except Ekron were already in existence and were conquered. And then these five Philistine cities formed a union of sorts and and they were very powerful in that region for many, many centuries. The Philistines began to attack the Israelites in about the 11th century BC. In Samuel's time, Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant in battle. And although the Ark was recovered later, they continued to occupy Israelite settlements and to be a thorn in Israel's flesh. The threat of the Philistines is what prompted Israel's demands for a king. But even under Saul, the nation was still menaced by the Philistines, a threat that ultimately resulted in Saul's death. This is a kind of a side note I'll share with you. The Philistines were famous for their production and consumption of alcohol, especially beer. Ancient Philistine ruins contain numerous breweries and wineries as well as beer mugs and other drinking vessels. Samson's wedding feast, recorded in the book of Judges, you'll remember, illustrates the Philistine practice of holding week-long drinking parties. So they were drunken warriors, drinking their beer out of mugs that um, probably had, you know, I wonder what the Philistine mascot was, I'm not sure, but anyway... In the end, the Philistines were assimilated into the surrounding Canaanite culture. They eventually disappear from the biblical record and from history altogether. They are a dead people. Today, the word Philistine is occasionally used as an insult. Salman Rushdie, who received uh, death threats after he wrote his fourth novel, The Satanic Verses, uh, Muslims believe that it insults Muhammad, he wrote a open letter to the Prime Minister of India when they banned that novel in 1988 and among other things he called the Prime Minister a Philistine which was a real highbrow insult and so if you really want to insult somebody in a highbrow way say you Philistine (laughs) I can't tell you what might happen as a result of that or what somebody might hear you say but um, and I'm going to delete that from the message so no one... (laughs) Pastor told me to call you a Philistine. The seven verses in this chapter describe God at war with the Philistines. He used other nations as the sword in his hand, notably Egypt and Babylon. And so verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. 
And so to the original hearers, this was a prophecy, and history bears it out as an accurate prophecy. The Bible is the only book that proves 100% accurate in its prophecies. It's not 99 and 44 one hundredths percent accurate. Is that ivory soap? Ivory soap has an ad campaign, 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure, and that's supposed to excite you? What is in the other 56 one hundredths? It doesn't take much to kill you. Is it West Nile virus? I mean, what is, what is in the rest of that soap? I, I don't see how that works. Actually, I did some research in between services, and it's not really even true. It's as close scientifically as they can come. And, and the rest of the ingredients are unnecessary additives. You want to switch soaps, I'm telling you. If you get nothing else out of this message, get rid of your ivory soap. There's something going on there. 100% accurate is the Bible. Of the 2,500 or so prophecies that we count in the Bible, over 2,000 of them have been perfectly, literally fulfilled. Can there be any reasonable doubt the remaining prophecies will be fulfilled? No. They certainly will be. Verse two, thus says the Lord, behold, waters rise out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it and the city who dwell within. Then the men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail. Although verse one mentioned Egypt, verse two seems to indicate a different enemy. Since this enemy comes from the north, uh, scholars identify it as Babylon because during this period of history, uh, when they talked about invasions from the north, it was specifically a reference to Babylon. Verse three, at the noise of the stamping hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers will not look back for their children lacking courage. It would be every man for himself, literally. Pretty bad when you are willing to abandon your own children in order to effect your escape. This is terror at a high level. It's the realization that the Babylonians have come and you just drop everything and everyone and you head for the hills. Babylonians would prove to be a superior army with more and better weaponry than the Philistines. When your victory depends on weapons, you'd better have the best ones. That's a kind of an unwritten rule, but um, you want to have the best weapons. Verse four, because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper who remains, for the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaftor. The soldiers may have come from Babylon or Egypt, but they were the instrument of the Lord. They were the sword of the Lord. He was exercising his prerogative to judge and destroy a nation that refused to repent and do good. History can only be truly studied and understood as the story of God's redemption of the human race. It is God who establishes nations and sets their boundaries, all with the plan to bring Jesus into the world through the nation of Israel. Every other aspect of history is subordinate to the one great fact that mankind needed a savior and God provided him by becoming a man himself. You can study history, you can, under, uh, you can know certain obscure historic events and, and all, and, and that's good, but 
everything, even though it may not seem to relate directly to it, everything is subordinate to God promising Adam and Eve that he would come into that timeline as a man and die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead. Uh, And that unfolding drama uh, involving nations being born and the nation of Israel being created out of Abraham and his descendants and all, uh, it's all really about Jesus Christ and his coming and especially the nation of Israel. And I, I think that's pretty easy to see in the 21st century now that Israel is a nation again because there, there hasn't been a day in my lifetime uh, in the 57 years I've been alive when Israel wasn't in the news when it wasn't a factor in world politics and world events. Uh, and, and when I read the Bible and I see what God said he was going to do and what God is doing and how it fulfills prophecy, uh, I mean, this is the only way to understand history. History is moving towards a very definite end, and that is first the great tribulation we mentioned in our update, and then the return of Jesus Christ and his second coming to establish a 1,000-year kingdom Uh, And then finally to create a new heaven and a new earth where all believers from all time will dwell in righteousness. So history has a very definite purpose and that's what it is. Verse five, baldness has come uh, come upon Gaza. Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long will you cut yourself? This is voluntary baldness. It means they cut off their hair and beards as a sign to everyone that they were mourning. Who remembers the musical Hair? A couple of you? Man, you're old. (laughs) Give me a head with hair, long, beautiful hair, waxing, flaxing, gleaming hair. Don't go home and watch it, please. (laughs) Not recommending hair. I don't think I've ever seen the whole thing. I just got to the part where they get nude. But uh, anyway, just crazy kind of, you know, the dawning of the day of Aquarius. This is the dawning of the day. That's all from there, you know, so... That's right, the sunshine song. Yeah, all of that. So it was a hairy time. It was a hairy time. Everybody, the long hairs, the hippies and all of that. You know, and and I never understood why the church, why churches think it's more spiritual to have short hair. I'm glad. I mean, I like short hair. but, But these guys, they were hairy dudes. I mean, they just let their hair grow. And when they wanted to show mourning and sorrow and bitterness and all, then they cut their hair, then they went bald. Uh, And and so uh, the other thing they did here was they cut themselves. And this is literally with with knives and sharp rocks, they were cutting themselves and bleeding. So if you walked by one of these guys, you knew something was wrong. What's that cut bald guy doing over there? Well, he's a Philistine from Ashkelon. Ashkelon must be cut off. I mean, it was a visual kind of a thing. Verse six, oh, you sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Put yourself up into your scabbard, rest and be still. Remember that phrase, talk to the hand? Jeremiah talks to the hand that has the sword in it. He personifies the sword of the Lord's judgment and asks it to sheath itself. Don't pass over this too quickly. It's a very interesting kind of Uh, insight into the heart of God and into Jeremiah. The Philistines were the age-old enemy of Israel for the most part of their existence in the promised land, yet Jeremiah takes no pleasure in 
the judgment that God decreed against the Philistines. He understood that God was coming to wipe them out with Egypt and then with Babylon, and he was sorrowful over it. Maybe he'd seen too many people wiped out, or maybe he understood that once this took place, once God's judgment, once that sword came out of its sheath, it was too late for those people to repent and they would be lost for eternity. And so it shows us a little bit about his heart. I mean, normally he'd be rejoicing. I mean, if you ask the average Israelite, hey, would you like to judge the Philistines? Yeah, kill them all. Every last one of them first. Make them suffer. But Jeremiah had a real heart, uh, a spiritual heart to understand what all this meant. Verse seven. How can it be quiet seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore? There he has appointed it. It's as if the sword answered back and said, uh, it's too late. It's, it's a really, it's a kind of a talk to the hand situation, which is what that means. It means you can talk all you want, but I'm going to go ahead with what I'm doing. The sword was coming. God is long-suffering, meaning he is not willing that anyone would perish, but that everyone would come to eternal life. That everyone would come to him for the forgiveness of their sins. And so we see in history that his long-suffering waits, and it waits, and it waits, and it waits. But it also comes to an end, and when it does, his judgment is sure and swift. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and then he told Lot, get out right now, because tomorrow it's all over. God raising up nations, putting down nations. The glory of Babylon, this great nation that he's using to judge his own people. The Medo-Persian army would come under the wall of Babylon in one night and destroy that power. Uh, And so when God's long-suffering is over, it's over. Now, there are no Philistines today, not any literal ones. As long as we are in these bodies of flesh, On this earth, whose God is the devil, we're told, weapons are being formed to plunder us, and in that spiritual sense, it can seem like God's people are still facing Philistines with superior weaponry. A great deal of the New Testament presents the Christian as a soldier in a fierce spiritual battle against supernatural foes. We read of principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And so we have invisible spiritual enemies that you can't see them. That it's kind of creepy, isn't it? To have enemies that are this powerful that you can't see. The devil seems to emit fiery darts. The apostle Paul called his thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. Whatever it was, Paul said, it's like a servant of the devil come to torture me. The devil, we're told, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Pastor and Bible teacher Ray Stedman once wrote this. He said, it is time we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ accept the fact that life is warfare and that we are engaged in a life and death struggle. The forces we face are not flesh and blood enemies, nor are they human but they are as real as any enemy who ever wielded a sword, a gun, or a flamethrower. 
Our enemy is legion, a deadly pantheon of spiritual hosts of wickedness. Though invisible, these forces are utterly dedicated to our destruction. Are you afraid? Maybe Yoda was right when he said, you will be. (laughs) It's my best Yoda, I'm sorry. Or will you be afraid? Not really. Because no weapon formed against you as the child of God can plunder you. You see, that is the lesson of the Philistines for us. Your spiritual weaponry is always superior to the weapons of the enemy, to the enemy himself. Your spiritual weaponry always superior. You are always Shamgar with an ax goad, ox goad rather, against overwhelming odds. You can win with the jawbone of a donkey if necessary. If hundreds and hundreds of chariots and thousands of thousands of soldiers are coming against you and you have just one sword, it's more than enough. Uh, And so, you know, we could pile on here in terms of our spiritual enemies, our supernatural enemies and and all that they're trying to do and, and all, but you cannot really be defeated by them if you understand uh, that the odds are always in your favor as the child of God. Weapons have been furnished to you to prosper you, and we'll talk about them right now. My first thought, to compile an inventory of the spiritual weaponry available to us, and you could probably do this just as easily as I have. The first to come to mind, of course, would be the Bible, the Word of God, because it's called the sword of the Spirit. It has no equal against our foes. If you want to see the sword of the spirit in action in a key encounter, all you need to do is read the account in the gospels of Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Weakened physically from fasting, the Lord masterfully wielded the word of God answering each of the devil's temptations with nothing but scripture set in its proper context. And so here was Jesus as a man, the God-man, but having, having set aside his divine properties to live as a man filled with the Spirit of God who had driven him out into the wilderness, tired and hungry and fasting, fighting the devil himself, Jesus, who later would be ministered to by angels, who could call legions of angels to his defense, who created all things, he said, I'm just gonna tell, I'm just gonna quote scripture to you, devil, and you will flee from me. And he did. Someone remarked regarding the Bible that you can't unsheath someone else's sword. You must have it personally strapped on. It's an encouragement to read and study the Bible for yourself. Having said that, although we should be as proficient as possible in the word, students of the Bible, whatever you know is always superior to your spiritual enemies and it's sufficient to prosper you against them. Sometimes we, we, we quail a little bit, we, we lose courage because we think, I, I just, I don't know enough scripture, I don't know enough about scripture, I can't really, you know, I'm, I'm just not there yet. When I first got saved at Calvary Chapel in Riverside, now Harvest Christian Fellowship, which by the way is celebrating 40 years of ministry this weekend in an anniversary, yes? Congratulations to Greg. Um, 
When I first got saved, I remember Paul Havsgaard was teaching and he said, he said Christian, if all you know is John 3.16 and you're saved, then you know enough to share the gospel with someone else because it saved you. I think of the blind man in the scriptures whom Jesus healed and then they drug him before the religious leaders and they questioned him and they queried him and they tried to trip him up and finally he said something that was super profound. He said, guys, I don't know. What I, here's what I do know. A minute ago I was blind, now I see. Why don't you tell me what's going on? And it confounded them. And so you don't need to be a Bible scholar. I'm not discouraging you from reading the Bible, studying the Bible, being a workman approved in the Bible. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, if you're a Christian, you know enough right now to defeat your enemy. You don't need a class on spiritual warfare. You don't need to understand the names of demons or anything like that. You don't need to figure out territorial spirits. You just need to walk in the will of God and obey God right where you're at. We would next list prayer in our arsenal. It's been said that the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his or her knees. It's been said that the Christian army marches on its knees. When you read the description of the Christian as a soldier who has put on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, the first thing you read after the armor is put on is praying always. Someone has said that a believer who has accepted the armor of God but does not pray is just a person who's all dressed up with no place to go and nothing to do. At some point, while inventorying spiritual weaponry, you're gonna begin to encounter things that you don't normally list as weapons. Listen to this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's from the ESV. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, by knowledge and patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Now, righteousness in this context is living right before God. It's not being perfect, it's choosing obedience. It includes all the things listed in these verses that we highlighted and more. Each of them could be said to be a weapon for the right hand or for the left, a weapon of righteousness. And so let's pick one. Do you normally think of calamities as a spiritual weapon in God's arsenal? Probably not, but they are when you meet them in the power of the grace of God by the assistance of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We often use the example of the ministry of Franklin Graham, Samaritan's Purse. Some calamity befalls a population, maybe a country or a city or an area, and the devastation and the death and all of that, and then organizations like Samaritan's Purse come in with help, but primarily with the compassion of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they become God's weapons of righteousness to storm the gates of hell, to capture back from the devil a desperate people who need answers and who need hope. And in that way, a calamity becomes a spiritual weapon. When we do think of some of these things, like beatings and imprisonments or other things, as weapons, we tend to think of them as somewhat puny. I mean, give me a healing any day over affliction if you want to reveal real power, right? 
Well, in the first Men in Black movie, you remember Will Smith's character, he got excited when they decided to give the kid a weapon. He was going to need a weapon to fight these crazy aliens. And they showed him the arsenal of weaponry available to him. Kay showed him the rifle-like series 4D atomizer, big shiny rifle. And then he handed him a tiny palm-sized gun, the noisy cricket. And he thought, what am I going to do with this? Later on, he found out how powerful it was. God is going to mostly distribute to us noisy crickets. We're always looking for the big gun. God says, nah, Gene, I think you're better off with a noisy cricket. Why? Because among other things, they make it most obvious that the power is his. They bring the most glory to him. When Jesus was on the earth, John, the, the apostle John in the gospel of John said he did so many miracles that if each one were written down, the entire world could not contain the books. Wow. Power of God, miracles, healings, feedings, raising the dead, exorcisms. At the end of that three and a half year ministry, how many people were left following Jesus Christ? The book of Acts say there were 120 people. The entire fruit of his ministry at that time from doing more miracles that could ever be contained in all the libraries on the earth, in all the earth itself, 120 people. One of the last miracles Jesus performed, he raised Lazarus from the dead, and the result of it was that the religious leaders said, we need to kill him, and we need to kill Lazarus. And so it's just not true that miracles and signs and wonders always bring glory to God in the sense of of that we normally think. It's just not true. You and I, we are God's spiritual weapon. It's not just that you have weapons at your disposal. That is true. You are God's weapon. You're weaponized, as it were, to walk through this world. Think back to our example of calamities. The disaster isn't God's weapon. A calamity, God didn't cause the calamity as his weapon of righteousness. Your righteous response to it, that's the weapon as you bring the gospel into that situation. And so we're to read the word and pray and put on the armor of God. That's our part, being ready. We must leave it to God to choose the weapon or weapons most appropriate to the situations we find ourselves in. If it's a healing, God will bring a healing. But if not we need to bring whatever else we have to bear. Endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God. Those were a partial list of the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. And what they're really saying this morning is if you as a simple child of God, follower of Jesus, whether you've been saved, as we like to say in our announcements, for 10 minutes or 10 decades, it's possible. Whether you know the entire Bible backwards and forwards or whether you only know John three sixteen or just a portion of it. Maybe you only know that Jesus wept and it touched your heart so much that you came to know Christ. Whatever situation you find yourself in, you are superior in your weaponry and you are the superior weapon to the uh, enemy. Unless we start fighting with carnal weapons. 
And that section, there's another section in 2 Corinthians I didn't quote, but it says, the weapons of our warfare are spiritual, not carnal. It means not worldly, not material. They're not the things that the world does. It's not fighting the way that the world fights. It's not saying we demand the healing when God says, I'm going to give you grace in the affliction. And there people will see my glory because they'll wonder how someone can love me and how I can love someone in this situation. A healing, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but it's an easy thing for God. What's not so easy is for you and I to trust the Lord when the healing doesn't come. So pray for healings and then stand in the power of God. Pray to be removed from situations and then endure them in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. They're, as always, Lord, difficult to hear, but they come in with the wonder of your love. And those of us who are Christians, Lord, they fill our hearts with that wonder. And Lord, many of us are struggling right now fighting fierce foes, Lord, supernatural enemies that are on paper way too strong for us. Lord, I I look at what I have and maybe it's nothing more than an ox goad. It seems so insignificant, Lord. And yet, it's enough when your hand and my hand are together in it. And so I pray for each of my brothers and sisters, Lord, who's struggling in some warfare, some trial, some battle, some skirmish, that they would stand, Lord, in your power. While we're closing our service and... Um, thinking about what we've just heard take a few minutes and, and just kind of pray these things in if you're a Christian God has imparted righteousness to you Jesus has given you uh, his righteousness imputed it to you from the cross and then he's imparted it to you in terms of the Holy Spirit indwelling you One of the brothers was joking with me yesterday after he read the study and he said, it's kind of like the Holy Spirit is the ultimate concealed weapon. Because when you insert a Christian in any situation, God the Holy Spirit is in that individual to bring victory. may not be the kind of victory that we think of at first, but it's going to be a spiritual victory. And there's no weapon formed against us that can prosper. And so if you're going through something today and who isn't, uh, remember the lesson of the Philistines and believe in your heart that you are God's weapon and in the place that you are, all he asks is for you to look to him and to obey him and to walk with him. Let's sing this chorus. Either sing along and worship the Lord or continue to pray and ask the Lord to reveal himself to your heart and to encourage you for the struggles that you're in.